Hi, this is Natasha Gornick, and you're listening to The Massacast. This podcast is for adults only. Hi, and uh, thanks for downloading an episode, this episode specifically, of The Massacast. Saad and I are, are we're taking a break from working and wedding planning. We're just sitting out here sweating in Central Park on it's, this nice hot day. It's beautiful. Uh, this is actually one of my favorite aspects of living in East Harlem and being in New York City is Central Park. If you ever visit New York, do not skip out on seeing Central Park. It's really, it's really quite something. Especially the North End. It's the best, in my opinion. Actually, this is our first time. I like your North End, by the way. Just, oh, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this, is, this is the first time we've been in Central Park legally married, I just realized. I think you're right. Today's the 25th, mm-hmm. and on Friday, we went, into, we went to the City Hall and got paperwork done. We're legally married now in the eyes of New York State. So this is it. You can't run now. You mean you can't run? That too. Both of us. Neither of us can run. Um, so this, that was really nice. It was really quite something. We had a few close friends there, and but our wedding wedding is still a little under two weeks away. Uh, oh, speaking of which, some people have asked where we're registered and have been sort of badgering us to have uh, get a wedding registry. So we did that. We've, got, we've actually got a wedding registry on Amazon. Uh, some of the stuff is obviously for kink purposes. Some of the stuff is obviously for... Making our lives fun and enjoyable purposes. And some, some of the things are for... for the, the, that Saad had no interest in getting, but and just in recently our home storage, hard drive storage unit, completely died on us. As it's a true tragedy. It is really bad. So all of our backups and stuff like that are just hanging in a balance. Uh, so yeah... Uh, I'll have a link to our registry on massacast.com. You can see it right there. So, This episode, uh, you're really in for a treat. It's the first lost episode of the Massacast. Lee Harrington uh, and I sat down and recorded an episode about well, well over a year ago. And Lee, uh, I sent Lee a draft. It must have, gotten, must have gotten lost in an email or something like that. And all of a sudden, uh, Lee and I are talking. I said, hey, whatever happened to that episode? And Lee goes, oh, crap. It must have been in spam or something or... So Lee, he, he listened to it, said, yes, go ahead, air it, and that's what you're about to hear now. This is about like a year and a half old, but still timeless, still great. Here's Lee Harrington. We, we, we just got done recording your podcast, mm-hmm. and we were talking about something, uh, and, and I remember thinking, well, this would be a good question for you, is, is how DS, because your, your podcast revolves a lot about DS and more the uh, emotional aspects of it. But how does DS take its part in your life? What are you, uh, you consider yourself polyamorous? So uh, that's a couple different questions. So I'll tease it out a little bit. Uh, Number one, the podcast, which is on erotic awakening is about the intersections of spirituality and kink or connection and sexuality and how those things form this crazy weird gumbo in Mm -hmm. our world. Um, and yeah, it was an absolute delight to have you on. So it's, I love doing this this back and forth kind of thing. But we did end up talking about DS a lot because I think that's a place that you and I intersect You're in a right. really cool way. Yeah, and I guess I, yeah, we can. De- I definitely want to talk to you more about that. One of the things that uh, within that that the other thing that you brought up was the idea of polyamory power exchange and how those two things are separate in my world but also together is that did i hear that right yeah, yeah, like, yeah, okay yeah. cool because sometimes it's like okay that was a really complex question <laughs> yeah. what made that <laughs> um so i do consider myself polyamorous and it's a really weird question for me sometimes because for quite a while my partner aiden and i weren't seeing anyone else 
and that's shifted since September for him and, and sort of kind of December will find out um, for me. There's someone in my world by the time this comes out, it, there's evolution happening in relationship right now. Sure. And which is an absolute delight that, that curious finding out each other, seeing if these pieces make a puzzle or if they just make a heap of puzzle pieces. Like, I don't know if you've ever had that in your world, but the, yeah, not the things, poly aspect, but yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Right. And it isn't necessarily poly. It's friendships. Yeah. It's, you know, not knowing day, where's this going to go. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. is, is this something that we're going to have three really good coffees or is this going to become a best friend for life? Yeah. And you don't always know right away. Sure. And for polyamory, it's, it's tricky for me sometimes because I really believe that love is not a finite resource. Like that's a core part of my existence, my belief system. And I had that really anchored in for me when I was 18 years old. I was flying to Ireland to do some studies abroad. And I was reading a book called Anamkara by Joseph O'Donohue, which argues that back in the primordial ages of time, there was um, that your dirt lay next to the dirt of someone else. And that when you have that soul recognition, that soul mate kind of thing, it's somebody who's been, you know, your energy and their energy are intermingled in some way. And literally right after reading that chapter, I was flying over Ohio on my way from Seattle to Ireland. And I looked down and I don't, have you flown over Iowa and no. Ohio and those kinds of areas? Yeah. Like um, the breadbasket states yeah. in general. I remember looking down and there was this one piece of dirt, like this one, you know, and there was like eight or nine <laughs> pieces of property that butted yeah. up against it. And I said, that's my dirt. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I apparently, my heart's apparently in Iowa. Um, and, and so for me, polyamory is very much in that framework that love is not a finite resource. But when it comes to dating, um, I think the, I, I think the, for me, the main reason I'm able to make poly work is Google calendars. That's very common. Yeah. I'm just move that microphone a little yeah, bit. Yeah, Absolutely. Google calendars is the most common response I've heard when it comes to managing Polly. And I joke about that because I was Polly before Google calendars, but uh, it's mostly for me about making sure that I maintain space and energy and time for the people and things that are important in my world. And, you know, am I giving enough time to my primary partner? Am I giving enough time to the person who's serving me? Am I giving enough time and energy to my co-author? Am I giving enough time and energy, I don't know, to myself once in a while? I, to call me a rebel, because that's, that's something I've been working on the last year and a half, is I'm just like, right, I should, like, do that self-date thing. You're extremely busy, so I imagine that that's, a, that's been a big help. Yeah. Yeah, it's been pretty edgy. Um, but part of that is also figuring out what my partners need and what I need. Mm -hmm. And that, that's A, not always clear cut. And B, there's this mythology in our world that it's do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And I think that's a total farce. It's do unto others as they want done unto themselves. Right. <laughs> because I might really enjoy anal sex, but if my partner doesn't enjoy receiving anal sex, that's just kind of rude to surprise someone in the kitchen. Surprise! Sorry, golden rule. <laughs> right. Oh, that'd be hilarious. I have a friend who is a switch mm -hmm. by Polly, and she has a number of, I guess you could say, DS partners, slaves. Mm -hmm. Uh, that she says fulfills different roles for her, and she also serves a few different dominants. Okay. 
because that fulfills because different styles of DS that she needs. And, and, and I just had a, 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 almost a mini panic attack listening to her describe <laughs> all the organization that goes along with it, how she will just be done serving someone and she'll, have, she'll be replying to a text message to a slave. And I was just like, wow, that seems extremely complicated. It's, I can imagine it's either really complicated and anxious-filled or anxiety-filled or it's uh, extraordinarily rewarding because she's getting all this input and all this feedback, uh, you know, I guess you could say from being loved and having all this attention. How do you, I mean, do you do both? Like when you have had multiple partners in the past? Yeah, so um, my current reality is that I identify as a god slave. And so in my spiritual life, I am just like a nun is a bride of Jesus, mm-hmm. like or, you know, a bride of Christ or whatever the terminology is. Maybe it's just the anchorites. Anyway, some forms of you know Christianity have that kind of modality. My experience is that the goddess I serve, who some might call the totem bear, mm-hmm. um, she and I have very much an, an owner property relationship. And so I had for a period of time, somebody that I was, um, a human, um, who I was in service and submission to. And when I told him that, you know, I'm happy to, you know, do all stuff, but you've got to remember that I am owned by my faith. Mm-hmm. Like that comes first, like in my world of, you know, hierarchy of needs, I would argue that her needs come before mine, uh, much in the way that I believe that, you know, the universe, like the, the needs of the universe sometimes, you know, the needs of the world to keep it having green outweigh my desire to, you know, throw litter on the ground. Like, let's, let's look at this. And, um, his response was, why doesn't your goddess like me? And I was like, but we're we're having a communication difference here because, um, yeah, and so one of the agreements I have with people that I submit to in a scene dynamic is that they have to understand that I will never be theirs. Yeah. Will I submit to them in a short-term play session? Absolutely. Will I even do service for them in a longer-run thing? I wouldn't say absolutely, but there have been times when that has been the case. But um, but that makes it, you know, it, it it's poly, but it, it's where my faith is one of my relationships. And so I think that gets to be its own interesting origami that has to happen. Have you been an owner as well? Yes. Do you find the type of DS you like when someone is, when you're controlling someone Mm -hmm. is the same as when you like to be controlled? No, no. I mean, there's pieces, there's pieces, but, um, I, I would say the biggest difference for me is that I, I have more expectations of myself as an owner than I expect from my owner. <laughs> Can you just give some example? Um, that if my property or slave or person who has gifted me with their long-term attention, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, if they feel saddened or disappointed by a situation, I take on a lot more responsibility for that than I expect anybody I serve to. That's really interesting. Yeah. When I'm in service to someone, it's, you know, if something doesn't go right, that it takes two to tango. Like yeah. I have to own my own thing with that. While if somebody's in service to me, sometimes I, 
I own more responsibility where it's just like, well, it didn't go well and I should have given you better directions and this and that. It's like, actually, if I step back from it, I might have not been as articulate as I could have been, but they might not have also asked the questions that they needed to ask. And maybe there's a space in between. There's a likelihood that there's an and Mm -hmm. rather than an or. And I, I, I think there's a reminder there sometimes that I have to step back. And as I'm, you know, as I look forward towards the potential of having somebody in a power exchange part, you know, in my world on the the service side slash whatever it might be in the future, looking at what that might look like. Because the other thing I've come to realize is I do like more self-help work, (laughs) like sitting with myself and being like, okay, who is the real Um, The more I do that around soul searching, the more awareness I have around how to better serve someone else and how to have someone serve me because they both involve me. And so if I don't even know what that me is, it makes it tricky to put in all the other people. So, and I would wonder if that friend of yours who serves all these people and has all these people in service to them, whether they found that me and have just realized, oh, this me has lots of nodes. <laughs> that all I think need to that's kind of how she describes it, how she's getting different itches scratched mm. uh, or f- maybe, maybe a, a better way to say is fulfilling different needs from different people because one person is maybe more heavy DS with a lot of protocols and the other person, maybe it's more of a pet relationship type of thing. Right. Um, no, that makes sense. The, for me though, when it comes to power exchange and multiple relationships and all those sorts of things, I have decided that I fall very much in the camp of Master Skip Chasey, who's an amazing, amazing educator. If you ever get to see his work, and uh, and Skip argues that, um, or states flat out that anybody who's in service to him has to have a faith background, or has to at least have something that they believe in that is bigger than them. Doesn't care if it's the flying spaghetti monster. That's yeah. cool. If you're a pastafarian, rock it. Um, but that idea that you're in service to a higher vision than yourself because there's, and, and I've very much fallen that, that, that if somebody believes that they are not the center of the universe, then there's the possibility for space for other people to also not be the center of the universe and that we can be both be doing something towards a greater good, yeah. whether it's feeding the homeless or, you know, helping people achieve enlightenment or at least take the first step there. What I, not that I can help people achieve enlightenment, but maybe I can hand them a book and said, Hey, you know, Hey, good luck. Um, leading by example. I'm sure a lot of people have found, I was giving you a compliment and you're like, you don't think so? Or do you not like the idea that you're leading by example because it puts too much pressure on you? I think there's that piece, but I, I, I recently had somebody say, well, can you teach me this one thing? It's such a basic of a spiritual practice. And I stared back and went, I don't know how to do that. And not that, you know, I expect myself to be perfect or anything like that. But the idea that, that I hear from people that I'm some sort of, you know, person to look up to for figuring out your religious quest. Like I'm really honored and I'm glad I'm, I think the thing I have to remember, and I, maybe I shouldn't just it off, but um, is that all it takes to teach is to be one step ahead on one thing, and that's all it takes to teach. And if that's the case, then cool. Well, when I say lead by example, too, it's, it's not just the spiritual aspect of your life, but also um, how you've really – I mean you have really jumped in 
to some and deep into some really intense subjects when it comes to kink. Yeah. And uh, not just the the spiritual side, but you know whether it's rope bondage or whatever. Being punched in the face, you know, it's all good. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Or, or punching people in the face, you know. But there's a lot of people who really look up to up to you because of your just because of your knowledge and your skill set, you know, which is not nothing, you know. True. And and one could say that it takes a certain level of bravery to do what you've done with your life, whether it's being in an alternative uh, sexual something that that other people uh, outside the quote unquote norm would maybe look down upon, mm-hmm. and still. Keep your head held high and, and still push forward. That takes a lot of bravery, you know. Yeah, I think that's a fair statement. It's one of the things I am working on in my life. So thank you for the compliment. I will accept it and hear it. <laughs> and thank you is that I am trying really hard not to rebuttal everything because there is that temptation. Right? Well, but, but, okay, but uh, I'll, I'll give it to you from the perspective of someone who's first starting out in the kink scene. When uh, I first started going to kink events... There was a lot of shame. I mean, I, I, I didn't have shame of, uh, on the actual act or the fact that I was into it. But mm-hmm. when I was at public events, I felt a little ashamed because I felt a little, I felt a little weird, or I don't yeah. know, I felt a little something. And the fact that I saw someone in, you know, giving a presentation who was clearly not ashamed, they were embracing it. They were not only embracing it; they were showing other people how to do it. Yeah. Uh, it was. It's not like I based my life on whoever. I couldn't even tell you who the first person I saw was. But I can tell you that it was enough to – I was able to take a little of that bravery up yeah. for myself and, and grow from it. I'm sure there's countless people who have felt the same way when they've seen you. I had somebody come up to me at an event. Was this a year or two ago? Um, I know the event, but I'm not going to out them this way. But they came up to me in the dungeon and said – Thank you so much for the class you taught. And it was a class on speed bondage. And it was a crazy packed class. Like there was literally a hundred people in the room. Like it was just insane. And luckily I had like helpers, but it was still a stupidly large class. And I'm like, Oh, I'm really glad you enjoyed it. And he said, my wife passed away not too long ago. And she and I had been kinky in the bedroom for, you know, 20 years, but she and I, you know, we went out to a couple of social gatherings and she just didn't resonate with that experience. So we, you know, saw porn and occasionally bought a book, but it was just her and I doing stuff in the bedroom. But now that she's passed, I don't want to be, you know, you know, I'm a widow. I mean, a widower. And so I don't want to isolate myself. I don't want to say, you know, go courting someone in the future. Like I'm not doing that today. But I don't want to in the future go looking for someone and have this be a thing that I'm not, you know, willing to at least look at, if not embrace. And he said, going to my class as the first thing that he did go, like it happened to be the first class. And I apparently sent a one-off statement saying, hey, you know what? If it works for you, love it. Embrace it. Go for it. Because there's going to be somebody else out there who's into that same thing too. And that one offhanded, you know, cute little comment really deeply affected me. And he gave me a piece of the, because he had handmade all of his own leather gear. And he gave me a piece of leather gear off of his body. That's great. And said, this is really important to me to hand this off to you so that I can say thank you in some way because it's, it's all I have to give. And so I agree. Having folks out there who are living by example and have the capacity to say those one-off sentences are the things that we do to plant the next, you know, that next generation of, of erotic adventurers. And I bet it also fueled you to... You know, maybe if you were feeling a little, <laughs> who knows what, you know, a little like, oh, what am I doing? I think everyone feels that sometimes. I'm sure that fueled you for years to come. 
Um, my threshold is a little bit lower, so I'd say like uh, two, <laughs> months. <laughs> two months. Oh, okay, that's two not or three bad. Months. That's uh, pretty good. I, whether we call it woo or happy happenstance or whatever, every single time I have debated quitting working in this field or doing some sort of activism in the kink community, every single time. Within 48 hours, I have had somebody contact me and tell me how much of a difference I've made in their life. And I'm like, okay, that's just a little creepy, but cool. <laughs> but really cool. Well, because you don't – I mean I, I think very much in the same way that you probably cut others slack more than you cut yourself. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the DS aspect. Yeah. It's probably the same thing. You probably don't give yourself enough credit. And, it, and it's the opposite of being egotistical probably is what it is, right? There's – which is a good thing to be, I guess. But uh, I hope that you, I hope people keep coming up to you and reminding you because, you know, you're a great resource to have. Well, it's really interesting. If, have you ever that's read? That's horrible. That's a very, that's sort of such a, such a non friendly way. To, you're a great resource to have. But go ahead. No, sorry. actually, that's kind of how I refer to myself. I, right. I jokingly call myself a giant Rolodex. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I know we don't have Rolodexes anymore, but hopefully. You know, the 18 year olds who are listening will hopefully understand that that's a that's your Google list yeah. or your FetLife friends group. Address book, sure. It's your address book. Do they still use address books? There, the, there's, the a, there's a uh, Mac app called oh. Address Book. Oh, okay, so cool, yeah. cool. I just want to make sure I'm not I'm not no, alienating. You're, cool. you're perfectly hip. Nice, yep. nice. I'm down with the hip. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, that people will come up to me and be like, "Gosh, I wish I knew." Uh, somebody who was a whip teacher in the Northwest who did private lessons. And I'd be like, you should talk to John Ireland. Here's his email address. It's just part of what I do. It's, uh, you know, I've got a giant library at home, which sadly is down to 500 books because the rest is in storage because we don't have enough space because we live in New York. We've got like 1,200 books at this point. It just keeps growing as a resource library. Um, But I've probably got like, you know, three or four shelves worth of kink stuff, a couple of, you know, shelves worth of pagan stuff. Like it's just those resources, sexuality, you know, nursing stuff because my partner's a nurse. But, um, But yeah, it's that if somebody says... You know, I wish there was more information on male male sexuality that wasn't from a gay thing, a gay perspective. I could be like, oh, you know, here, try this out. I do think of myself as a resource, and it's one of the reasons that I'm an obsessive learner is because I consider myself somebody or something. Sometimes it's a thing. It's not always a human language in my head. That if person who is into, you know sex magic or is into bondage or whatever is you know comes up to me and goes i'm really interested in this stuff and i don't know where to start and my eyes are really big and can someone help me i can be like oh why are you into kink why are you into bondage what's hot about that for you oh what's really hot about you for you is the objectification element have you looked at the stuff on houseofgord.com seriously check them out that might really appeal to you and you can get ideas to communicate or like images that you can communicate with a potential partner about that idea of fornophilia being turned into a piece of furniture that is nothing but a thing so when you you know you were saying i shouldn't refer to you as a resource that's actually kind of how i identify (laughs) do you ever play matchmaker or are you like me and you're like you did it once and it completely went horrible and wrong and so you don't do it again because you know so many people so I occasionally do things where I say, you should talk to this person, but I no longer do. Th- I, I shouldn't say no longer. I don't think I've ever done the actual romantic matchmaker thing. 
happy happenstances have come out of it, but I don't, I don't really want that kind of thing to be about me. If that makes any sense. Like, I don't want somebody to be like, we're together because of you. Um, because I imagine 12 years later, it's like, we were together because of you. And I'm like, I don't, I don't (laughs) want that. Not my job. Every time I played matchmaker, it's, Unless it's friend friend matchmaker, I'm very good at. Right, exactly. But anytime it's outside of that, it's not never been good. Yeah, I've I've played co writer matchmaker. I've played you know collaborative project matchmaker. Absolutely, I love that stuff. Yeah. Um. So one of the one of the most common people common questions people had when I told them, oh, they're, they're, everyone seems to, in the kink scene. If I, uh, I come up to them or they come up to me, or they're, who's next on the massacre? This past couple of weeks, I've been saying Lee Harrington, and there's a whole long list of things that they were like, oh, did uh, did Lee talk about this? Or did Lee? And one of the most common things they wanted to hear is the the full story of how you transitioned from Bridget to Lee. Now, earlier in our first conversation, you mentioned. Uh, being at, was it Bible Camp? Yeah, Unitarian Universalist there, Youth Camp. That's what it was. And how yep. you you knew about your, enough about yourself at that time to to did you already self identify? The gentleman that I met, and by gentleman I mean teenage boy, um, who I met because um, I was a teenager, he was a teenager, um, and uh, who was my first master. He's the one who, who who we'd been together for about six months when he asked me if I could be trans and he introduced me to someone. And that's what got the ball rolling for me as a teenager. But when I found out from my therapist that she was not going to approve me for a letter for being able to continue that transition, I wrote it off. And I basically said, you know what? If I can't be a guy or whatever that would look like, I'm going to become a high femme woman. And just if I'm going to be a woman, let's embrace it. Let's go for it. Let's see what happens. Um, and I really enjoyed, you know, those 10 years of my life. And, you know, when I was 20, when I was 20, I uh, did a, a little ritual for myself. Was I 21? It was at Burning Man. That's what matters. Um, I did a ritual with um, Fakir Mustafar and Claire Dubois. It was the first time, I, I mean, I'd seen them in the scene in passing and all that stuff, but it was the first time I really met them where I had brandings done on each of my legs, one that was the Burning Man sigil. And so that was my masculine brand. Um, and it was done at night after I'd fasted for an extended period of time while dressed all in black in fetish wear. And it was with another 30 people who were getting the exact same branding done. Like it was this giant line of branding people at the Temple of Atonement. And the next day, and that was like with with voyeurs, with all of this stuff. And the next day, during the heat of the day, right? So that was almost at midnight. The next one was almost at noon. Um, it was uh, a women's only space. And and Fakir showed up by being Kiki, who's Fakir's feminine persona. Um, and I gotta say, Fakir looks so cute with little barrettes in their ear, like in their hair. It's so cute. Little like mini skirt, little flip flops. Um, <laughs> Super cute. Um, and for people who know, have seen Fakir, like, it's like, but Fakir is this, like, no, no, Fakir is Kiki. Kiki I'll have to is Google. So beautiful. I'll have to Google. You haven't seen Fakir Mustafar? No, I've done. Oh, Fakir Mustafar, for people who don't know, like, seriously, he's considered the by a lot of people, not by everyone, um, the grandfather of the modern primitive movement. If you ever saw A Man Called Horse back in the 70s, it's no. about the Sundance ritual. 
So saying that he was the guy hanging from hooks doesn't help. Um, but uh, but yeah, flesh hook suspension, uh, ball dancing. Um, he and Cleo like were really at the forefront of that coming to the United States. And you know, I've got a lot. Every time we talk, I have a lot of googling to do afterwards. <laughs> I was like, oh wow, there's so much of this that I don't, I haven't been exposed to. Um, yeah, they so they did the second branding for me, and Fakir did the technical branding um, uh, on the one side, and Cleo did the the technicalities of the branding on the other side. One was strike brand, the other one was electrocautery gone over a couple of times, and so it was like literally this night and day experience with some other things that happened around it. But that was me kind of coming to what I referred to myself at that time as being two spirit or being bi gendered, where I'm like, you know what, I'm gonna live as a woman, but I might occasionally fuck as a guy. I might occasionally, you know, sexually or emotionally explore as a guy, but at the end of the day, I'm still living as a woman. And then uh, I was working as an adult film actress um, at the time and like part time. And then I moved into that being full time. We talked about that a little bit before. Mm -hmm. And I've been doing that for a number of years. And I kept growing my hair out because my, you know, my master of the time wanted my, my master who left me. And then I kept doing adult film work. Um, wanted me I mean he left anyway storyline it is what it is um there were tight timelines of when I started and when he left he left me a little bit before anyway he had asked me to grow my hair out because it had been very short so throughout adult film work I just kept growing my hair out because I thought that that's what you needed to be to be in porn um unless you were you know uh, kumi monster everybody else had hair and uh until I was interviewing with a fashion uh company to potentially do a thing for New York Fashion Week and they were looking for a plus size model and, you know, I showed up with my hair slicked back with like a hair piece clipped in. And the guy said, don't you have long hair? And I'm like, yeah, but I'm crappy at taking care of it. And I let the hair down. And, um, and he's like, well, if you don't know how to, if you don't like your hair, why do you have it? And I'm like, oh, well, I work as a model and blah, blah, blah. And everyone wants long hair. He's like, well, what if you, if you could do anything, what would you do? And I said, I would want to be bald. And he said, I'd totally hire a bald you know, act, a bald model. And literally within a week, I shaved my head. And suddenly there was this body playfulness opportunity where even though I was a 38D to double D, um, the bald head allowed me to gender shift back and forth. And suddenly I was playing with androgyny. I was playing more with men's energy, more actively in public. I was going back and forth, but still wanted to live as a woman. But I talked with my fiance at the time, like, this is on the table for me. I don't know if it's like, I've been debating this for many years. I don't know what's going to happen, but here's why not. And it was, uh, 2006, I think it's 2006. I'll look it up. It was either 2006 or 2007. It was my birthday. I know it was November 28th of one of those years. I think it was 2006. Yeah. Cause I came out as being trans at the beginning of 2007 where I was in Sydney, Australia. I went up to Manly Beach, which is like, um, it's the geographic equivalent of going from New York City and kind of going like the South, well, no, Central Long Island. It's, it's like taking an hour long ferry to sure. wherever that would take. Um, anyway, it doesn't matter. And I went to Manly and I just had this moment where my brain broke. Because I was doing like the strapping down the breasts thing. Because I was having some body dysphoria again around them. And I just, like it's the middle of the night. And I just started stripping off my shirts. 
and throwing them to my slave boy and, uh, and being like, I am so sick of the fact that I have to wear a top at this beach. No guys have to. I don't know why I even have these breasts. I'm going to get rid of them, et cetera, et cetera. Like I was like, I'm going to get rid of my breasts. I'm going to change my name to a gender neutral name. It's what I'm going to do. And so I had friends who I basically said, okay, so this is what I'm going to do. So what name should I go by? And for a different, you know, every week for a different, you know, every week for a couple of weeks, I'm like, try out Brian. And people are like, Brian this, Brian that. And I'm like, I really like the name Brian, but it's not Brian. And I caught a couple, tried a different, I think I tried Thomas. And then I realized there were too many trans guys that I knew named Thomas. Um, and uh, anyway, and so I, and I also decided for myself that I didn't want to have a, um, a name that involved the letter Y or any sort of modern versions of names that, you know, um, Tristan with a Y is a fantastic name, but it's a name from 2012. And I was born in 1979. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and so for me, Lee was in the top 20. Like it was a name from my birth year. It's also the name of one of my uncles and who's a fantastic human being. And it, my former middle name was Ashley. One of my middle names. I had a couple. Um, it used to be Bridget Louise, Ashley, Hareggie, Harrington, Jarvie. Wow. Yeah. So I went from that to Lee Harrington. Much. <laughs> Much easier to sign a check. Right? One of the many ways. Right. And, um, and my plan had been, and this was the plan, had been uh, chest surgery, name change. That's it. That had been the plan. And... Um, and so I, instead of getting a doctor's letter because of how my early transition stuff had happened with me not getting approved, um, I got a letter, letter from my mother. And my mother said, my kid has been dealing with this issue, these issues since they were 14. I will back this up. I will come and talk to you, doctors. But this is my child's reality. Um, and so... I went and talked to a number of different chest surgeons and said, here's what I'm doing. And they're like, so do you consider yourself transsexual? And I'm like, kind of, but it's more in the middle, et cetera, et cetera. And they were just flabbergasted about the fact that I was coming in and interviewing them, first of all, because most people are like, most of the, I found out from these surgeons, most trans people, trans women or trans men come in full of fear. You know, yeah. they come in from this place of like, will you fix me? Can you help me? Well, I've seen plenty of documentaries and it's always like sort of a uh, once the transition starts, it's almost like, oh, it's sort of the I was lost and I'm found type of moment. Yeah. right? And that wasn't my case at all. I'm like, no, you're about to do a major surgery on my body. Let's talk about this before I hand you thousands of dollars yeah. and have you cut me open. Can we talk about mm -hmm. that? And so I interviewed chest surgeons and I had booked one, like I'd planned to book one for, um, for that summer, for, for that summer. And he was one of the top in the country and we'll get to that sob story in a second. Um, cause it didn't go as planned. Um, but I ended up, uh, uh, having a talk with a friend. I don't even remember who it was now, but it was somebody who, somebody basically mentioned, well, you're going to transition. Have you ever considered testosterone? And I'm like, no. Well, I mean, I thought about it, but only when I was fully transitioning and I haven't thought about it really recently. And I said, they said, well, think about it. And so I went to an, I did research and then I went to an endocrinologist and said, so I'm having chest, chest surgery. I've had, I'm having my name change. 
This is what I'm planning on doing. Um, what do you think about me going on hormones? I'm thinking about having the lowest dosage possible that's safe, according to the following standards. I'm curious about what your thoughts are. And again, the you know endocrinologist I was working with, she was just like, I have never had somebody come in and say that. She, I came in with a packet of information with highlights and notes on it. And she was like, I've never had somebody come in having done all of the research, which again, it surprises me because I'm a nerd. So the idea of somebody going to go through some sort of radical change to their body, I just didn't get it. Um, in both cases, it didn't go as planned um, because I ended up finding out um, from my own body experience and there's nothing in the literature, but this is my own experience that, um, the testosterone, um, the sesame cypriot that was, um, my testosterone was suspended in was, um, uh, upping my, upping my numbers of, uh, seizures oh, wow. that I was having. Yeah. Once I went off of it and onto a topical testosterone, I had no issues, yeah. which was wacky. Yeah. Um, but, um, but yeah, it was around that time where I was still running my porn site Right, this is where the whole Bridget to Lee thing gets wacky. Is um, I was still running a porn site, so I'm like, oh well, I'll just add a thing in here called Gender Journeys. I'll add a track of erotica and I'll post uh, a track of porn. Let's let's own it for what it is. Um, I'll put on a track of porn and I'll put up, you know, Lee slash Bridget Harrington, and then later I changed it to B Harrington. And I I don't know, I was playing around with it, and I would post sets that hadn't been updated because I had probably like 50 sets from Bridget. That had never gone live, so I was still able to do that for a long time. I kept it shuffled, kept it kept it shuffled up. Here's photos or uh, that I've shot, or here's you know photos of me tying other people up. Here's photos of Bridget. Here's photos of Lee, and it was a really fun thing to do for about a year until I maybe a year and a half until I realized I was having such. I mean, I'm not sure to call it dis whether to call it a dissociative episode or disassociation or dysphoria, something in that spectrum when I was editing photos of Bridget because she didn't, she looked like me, but she didn't look mm -hmm. like me. And she certainly didn't look like where I wanted to end up. So it was really weird. And I ended up sticking with the testosterone and deciding to actually, you know, medically transition because it was the first time in my life. And I mean, in my life that I have conscious memory of, where I, you know, I'd, I'd been on testosterone for maybe two months and I got a massage from a friend and it didn't hurt. I had a major fall when I was a small child and have like, I pop constantly. Mm -hmm. My neck pops, my back pops. Um, I go to chiropractors on a regular basis. I had all, my former husband was a massage therapist and I was convinced that the, the entire idea of a relaxing massage was a myth. Absolutely convinced. And so finally you could actually enjoy it? My day-to-day -day pain dropped from like a day-to-day -day six or seven to like a day-to-day -day three to four. What was what, – what's the – it's just one of those things. It's wacky. I mean looking back, um, I have come to love mustard more. <laughs> like, well, like some of the tea things are just weird. I've seen, I've seen the number of documentaries and uh, I, when I first moved to New York – I had never met a trans person before, uh -huh. and uh, I became friends with with someone, and uh, she was just finishing up her trenches, and and we were became, became really good friends. And early on in our relationship, I said, "Okay, as someone who grew up on a farm, very sheltered life, mm -hmm. can I ask you just some absolutely stupid questions? Totally knowing that, and I I don't want to offend, 
And she's like, no, 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 that's fine, you know. And I'm like, I, but I feel like an asshole. But I want to, I want to grow from this in multiple ways. But I don't want to feel like I'm using you as a whatever. She was like, no, go ahead. And so, like, the first question was like, was like, wasn't it hard to get rid of your testicles? Was it really? I mean, wasn't that like the hardest thing? And she said, no, you don't understand. I've been not wanting to get rid of these those my entire life. You know, uh, that doesn't sound like the same. Like you, like you felt like you had to absolutely. You were, you were. Seems like less of an impulse or emotional impulse for you, maybe. Uh, so uh, that's a little tricky for me because for ages I've said that um, you know I consider you know the fact that I have a vagina a bonus because I really like getting fucked and suddenly I have more options. Mm-hmm. That's cool um, than than the average guy. Like I could do triple penetration as compared to double penetration unless somebody's really flexible and that's not me. You mean um, you're hanging out with a Cirque du Soleil or something? Well, I, no, no, no. I'm talking about like how many penises you fit into an orifice. Right, I've right. seen porn of that, but I'm like that just doesn't that doesn't yeah. look comfortable. Yeah. For at least people with penises and the bending that's involved, I'm impressed. Yeah, but um, <laughs> makes for hot porn, yeah. but not for my experience. Um, and I've joked for a long time that I'm a gateway drug, right? That gay men can have sex with vaginas without it being a problem. Heterosexual men can have sex with men and have it not be a problem. But um, my main thing was that I had dysphoria around my upper body. Like the main thing was that I had these boobs. And I couldn't strap them down. Like, they were big. Like, I tr- when I was wearing a binder, you know, that creates that kind of masculine physique by flattening everything down, um, it, I look back at photos. I'm like, who was I kidding? I didn't pass. I didn't, you know, and not that passing is required to be transsexual at all. But it, when I look back, I'm like, okay, that was not the presentation I was looking for. But... I'm not sure. It's one of those really tricky things of what came first. I thought on and off for years um, that uh, that having external genitalia would be great. But when I was doing research various times, you know, as a teenager in my early 20s, etc., the surgeries weren't perfect. And working a vagina or sometimes working but varied respo- varied results depending on who you were seeing, how your body responded, which surgery you chose, because for female to male transsexuals, there's a lot of different options Mm -hmm. out there. And depending on what you're looking for, as far as surgeries, some things are better than others. Yeah. Um, And as compared to uh, to male to female transsexuals, where, you know, yes, you're going to have to have an orchiectomy of the removal of the testicles and, and some sort of, uh, penile removal surgery uh, combined with you know creating a vagina, but those surgeries have been practiced for quite a long time. Um, I, can't, I can't remember the phrase, but uh, she she said it's it's easier to make a hole than create a po- what? It's easier to dig a hole than make a pole. Which it was a, you. It was you who said that. It's a horribly offensive thing that was said by a, a surgeon who did trans surgeries mm-hmm. back in the eighties and nineties, and I'm just like, wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so my things that I ended up through fluke happenstances, i.e. my, my mother's side of the family genetics, um, having, uh, fibroids and, uh, and there being a likelihood there were cysts as well. Like there was just this whole, my uterus was angry and my mother said, cause they, you know, my health insurance said, you know, we can, uh, we can cover your, 
uh, getting these removed. And my mom said, are you planning on procreating using that stuff? And I said, no. And she said, and didn't you do research saying that since you're on testosterone, that I should really, you should really consider having a hysterectomy within 15 years because there's withering issues and higher chances of ovarian cancer rumored, but that's not, there's no formal studies yet. Mm -hmm. I said, yeah. She said, those fibroids have been reoccurring in my life. I had to have surgery every two years to get rid of them until I finally ended up just flushing the system. If you're not going to use it and your health insurance will cover it, kid, why don't you just do it? And I'm like, really, mom? And she's like, just do it. I mean, it's your body. <laughs> but, but I mean, my mom was really supportive of that idea. And um, after I had my hysterectomy, which rat, I mean, they got rid of my cervix. Like they got rid of everything. I don't have ovaries. I mean, this is perhaps TMI for some people, whatever. Um, but this goes back to the no stupid questions thing. So if I just put it out there. No, I, I'm sure there's a lot of people who have that question and, yeah. and are getting that answered right now. Yeah. And so, um, you know, my vagina is less shallow, you know, shallower than it used to be. It's just a different sensation. It's a different experience of sexual intercourse. Um, not bad. Uh, and compared to other trans guys, I know I haven't had, you know, I, I still have, I still have fluid production in ways that other trans guys don't. And isn't <laughs> that a delight? Um, but it's, it's been really weird because since then, I mean, I had the interest in, in having external genitalia before, but I've had more body dysphoria around the lower half of my body, um, on and off for the last, gosh, when was that? Three years mm -hmm. since I had that surgery, um, and I'm you said not less or more, 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 more like that distinct craving for external genitalia, and including moments where I've been naked. I mean, not in the last couple of months, but I've had moments where I'm naked in front of a mirror. And actually, no, that's not true. I had a moment in December. Anyway, um, where I've been naked in front of a mirror, and I just go, that's uh, and my brain short circuits. Um, or I have a depressive spell because mm -hmm. it's just, that's not right. To the point that last year at the Philadelphia Trans Health Conference, I joked that it was the all-cock conference for me because I went to every single class panel or opportunity that I could go to um, about phalloplasties, metoidioplasties, all of that kind of stuff um, to see what was happening out there. And there was a real, as a note for people who don't know about Philadelphia Trans Health Conference, um, it's one of the largest trans health conferences in the world, or it might actually be the largest. Um, but there was a class there from a surgeon talking about her experiences. There was a panel on the topic. There was a, um, a trans man uh, presenting his findings from his book, Hung Jury, uh, which is uh, different trans men talking about their experiences having had um, lower body surgeries and talking about it first person or their partners talking mm. about it, which was a really cool idea for a book. So he presented stories from that book. And then there was a thing that was, um, for trans guys only. Um, and I'm not sure, I don't remember how they define trans men, but, but it was, uh, trans men only closed door session. Like they closed the door at the time that they started, no entry leaving only. Um, and, uh, so if you have to go to the bathroom, you're out. Mm -hmm. And it was a uh, drop trial session. 
And it was just these guys who were, and a lot of them were straight or had never had anybody see their bits since their surgery mm. other than their spouse. Um, and there was a lot of heterosexual trans men in that room, um, trans men who are married to women and concern themselves heterosexual men, mm -hmm. um, including the guy who was running the, the, the thing. And to see these guys have the bravery to show what was going on and talk about who was their surgeon and what's sex like and how is their experience going in the bathroom now and how has this changed this and that was so touching. But for myself with my lower body right now, I, A, there's the financial reality the sheer amount of money needed to do some of the surgeries that I'm potentially interested in, not really worth it. Um, and if I had $30,000, I would use it for other things mm -hmm. right now. Um, and, uh, and that's not counting food or travel or whatever to Czechoslovakia or yeah. wherever it is. Right. Um, but you know, for me right now, that's not where I'm journeying, but it's really interesting on the Lee to Bridget piece or Bridget to Lee, I should say. Um, the people who have shifted really easily, the people who haven't shifted or can't figure out how to, um, that, um, you know, my father still actively she's me, um, and has problems of looking at me in the eyes, hmm. uh, like really does. Uh, my mother who just says, yeah, it's my son. It's my kiddo. Whatever. Like doesn't. Sounds like your mom has been awesome from day one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I personally theorized that it's because I was a pain in the butt and she realized if she was going to keep me around, right. she had to adjust a little bit. That's um, one of the most common threads of people who I know who <clears throat> who go through a transition. Very, <clears throat> excuse me, very rarely do they have supportive stories from their family. Mm. And um, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I guess I know why that is, uh, you know, on paper. But I think it's really hard to imagine not wanting your kid to be happy. I mean, I'm preaching to the choir here, but, um, you know, I, I told you the, the first trans person I met in New York, uh, I was just shocked at how her family, her family's not even in the picture anymore, you know, yeah. completely out of picture. And uh, even though she's much happier now as a woman than before when she was a guy and it's really, really sad, you know, that, that it's almost, I mean, and for some reason these people get a pass as parents, right? Uh, it should be, I mean, someday it'll probably, do, do you feel like maybe that the vibe out there is that people are more looked down upon when they quote unquote abandon their kid with their, if they have a need like that? Or is it just like anything else? Some places it's more accepted than others. I would say it's it's option two. Uh, I look at families who disown or you know no longer accept or whatever their children for a variety of reasons mm -hmm. with with emotional confusion. Yeah. Um, with a lot of emotional confusion, I think of a friend of mine here in the Northeast who got kicked out of his house when he was fourteen for being gay. You know what I mean? Like, what? Yeah. My brain just can't wrap my head around that in a lot of ways. I can only... The only thing that makes me feel better about it is that cases like that seem to be happening less and less. When I was a kid, I remember I would hear stories of this all the time. Son was gay, and so the, you know, you know, it was... Something like that would happen. This is back in the 80s, right? Yeah. Whereas now, it sounds like you have... 
it's more maybe because it's more accepted in general. Uh, but it, it just I, I, I like maybe or maybe I'm just lying to myself and thinking that it's oh it's getting better right. But um, yeah, just hearing the story about her uh, relationship with her parents, it's really really it just makes me want to go kick him in the teeth. It's really just really frustrating. Yeah, I've seen it though for Kink. Yeah. I've seen it for Polly. Yeah. I've seen it for folks who have alternate, um, alternate spiritual practices to whatever their family of origin is. It's, you know, it's really, it's really sad yeah. to me. Uh, let's talk about more about, you said you, you were taking testosterone pills. I was taking testosterone injections. Injections. Um, did you notice any changes other than the physiological I've heard some people say, yeah. like you said, you said you crave mustard more. Yeah, so um, I was I tracked for the first like six months weird things that shifted in my. So I remember that um, I made a note that uh, I was more interested in mustard and vinegary things. I liked uh, salmon more than I did. I, uh, but the weirdest one was actually a mental one. I was back in Sydney. A while later, and uh, right before chest surgery, and I was sitting at a gelato restaurant, like a gelateria, as you do, right? And and I was staring off in the distance down King Street, and a friend of mine said, "Hey, what are you looking at?" And I realized that I had been staring at a denim-clad ass. And I couldn't tell you what gender it was attached to. I couldn't tell you what the person's face looked like. I had completely objectified this, you know, rear end. Mm-hmm. That That's all there was. And my little inner feminist screamed. Because it's like, oh my God, I, I just became an objectifier who, a non-consensual objectifier who turns something, somebody into nothing but a thing. Yeah. They were reduced to nothing but their ass. What is wrong with me? My mother didn't, I thought my mother raised a better feminist. Huh. Like this whole inner dialogue just exploded. Yeah. Right. And what was funny about that for me is that I realized that well, hey, I, I still wonder to this day whether there's a biological component to the hunter-gatherer piece. Um, because my own experience was that there, there's been a biological shift from gatherer to hunter. That um, To the point that I actually started writing a, like a small book that I was going to call like Hunting for Your Partner or something like that. But um, that when I went into a party, right, you're going into a large social party situation. What my brain used to do is take in the entire room, notice who's here, what's going on, take in the entire space, and then go, okay, cool, all these different things are happening, but I'm going to choose to check in with these friends over here, or I'll spend a couple minutes here, a couple minutes there, see what happens. I have found now that whatever I'm thinking about right before I go into one of those parties is where my brain goes to. Really? Like, if I'm really hungry... I'll literally go straight to the food table and walk past somebody I know. Yeah. And not even say hi in some situations because my head's here. Like, I'm just like really hungry, must get food. Like, when before, even if I was really hungry, must get food, I'd still take in the whole space, decide on this. If I'm thinking I need to find my partner, again, same kind of thing. Like, 
I'll just go for it. I've trained myself now, having realized this, realized this thing, um, that nowadays it's like before I go into a party, I go, right, I'm going into a party. I need to remember that thing. Yeah. I'm going into a party. And that's not the thing I'm thinking about before I go in. But That's really fascinating. Yeah. Anything else that, that jumps out at you about the any any differences in, in thought processes? or um, Do you still objectify or is it just the one-time thing and you kept it in check or is it more? No, no still no. do it. I try to be more civil about it. Yeah. Not as obvious, but there's those days. And again, the feminist in me is still angry. Um, I try again. I try to be more conscious of it. Yeah. I try not to do it. But there's those days when those fetish elements bubble to the surface and they become more, you know, actual clinical fetishes as compared to I think those are things are cool. Sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, and now I'm, I'm wondering because I've noticed when when I because they've, they've they've done some studies and says that show that when guys get into serious relationships that their testosterone levels drop a little bit hmm. in some, especially if they, they have kids is, is what, it, but I'm wondering, cause I kind of caught myself. We went to a party a couple of years ago and I was shocked because it used to be, I'd walk into a room and think, who would I fuck here? And now that's, it's not only off the table. I'm not, I don't think about it anymore, but I remember, I remember consciously noticing, holy crap. I used to think, yeah. you know, that would be the first thing I did when I walked into a room. Um, you mentioned earlier about uh, a chest surgeon who was supposed to be the best in the, in the country. So, um, uh, I'm not, I don't, since the, the court case did not proceed, I'm going to choose not to list names. Sure. Because um, I don't want this to be formal libel. Um, but uh, he did lose his, his license. Um, that uh, apparently... I mean, when I was researching him, he was one of the top five in, in North America. Like, he was really excellent, um, known for having a harsh bedside manner. Um, but as far as technical skills, good. And I'm like, I don't need somebody to be my friend. Yeah. Like, you are the they job good? Done right. I interviewed him. Like, it felt like a good match. I'm like, okay, this is the right chest surgeon for me. Um, apparently, a couple weeks before my surgery, his wife left him. And he proceeded to do drugs. So he did my surgery, apparently under the influence. That's what I found out later. Mm-hmm. Um, I had asked him like, to give some ideas. Um, the following is going to be slightly graphic for people listening at home. So if you are sensitive to the idea of medical waste, surgical botching, or that stuff, fast forward a few minutes. Um, <laughs> just a trigger warning. Yeah. Um, I had asked for a small piece of my human tissue to be able to like give an offering, like a, a little burnt, like whatever. I'm like, can I have a little piece of myself? Would that be weird to ask like, for a piece of my skin or something? I don't know if that's too weird. He's like, no, it's fine. Um, when I woke up, he apparently had run out of medical waste containers and apparently didn't understand the idea of a piece because he'd sent his nurse to the Chinese restaurant down the way and had got a Chinese takeaway soup container that he had filled up with my fat. That's one of the most bizarre sentences that this <laughs> microphone has ever recorded. <laughs> um, and that's a yeah. list. And so from there, he, um, like I went home, uh, I was not home, but where I was staying in New Jersey because it was in New York. And um, he... Uh, I found out later you're only supposed to go in for follow-up when you're having your drains out and then maybe a, a week or so later to check up on you. But he was having me come back in every two or three days 
head from New Jersey back into New York with like having recently had surgery to look at things, to explore them, to redo stitches in some situations. And at one point there was a little bit of, of darkening around one of the nipples where it was starting to like, like stuff was starting to leak out a mm-hmm. little bit. And he's like, okay, we need to cauterize that a little bit. And I'm like, okay, is, isn't that like, you know, isn't that a little bit concerning? He's like, no, 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 we'll be fine. We'll just do a little bit of a thing. I'm like, okay. And then he brought me in again and he was putting me under a scope and was taking silver nitrate, like sticks of silver nitrate, and putting, like, shoving them into my open wounds. And I'm like, isn't that a chemical cautery? He's like, no, it's not. So he outright lied to yeah. me. Um, and um, about a week after that, my nipples fell out in the shower. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I lost my shit. Um, I completely mentally and emotionally fell apart. Um, uh, and by that point, like I, <laughs> like there had been some slippage. We put everything back in, we rebandaged everything, but when it actually fell out, I was not home because I'm like, Oh, it was a month after surgery. Um, and, uh, uh, and so I was, I had originally booked to teach a class, uh, teach, you know, it was one of those, there were going to be non-working classes, no bondage, no anything. It was me showing up talking. Mm-hmm doing two classes and then leaving. And I ended up having to leave that conference early because my nipple fell out. And so his office um, flew me back to New York um, and told me, be here at the office at 9 a.m. tomorrow. We are flying you last minute. We will take care of you. It's okay. And I sat in that office and luckily had a friend with me, but I sat in that office and I sat in that office and, uh, oh no, no, the fallout happened there. The actual fallout. Anyway, there was, there was like three different times when things tried to fall and when the mm-hmm. final happened. Anyway, my friend's sitting there next to me when the, after the final one happened, they brought me in and, uh, um, we sat there and the surgeon no shut. And we were sitting there till about one o'clock. We got there at nine. Mm-hmm. Um, when the receptionist, she's just like, he's going to show up. I'm really sorry about this, whatever. Um, like she was being very considerate. Um, and at about one o'clock, um, one of his, I found out later, it was the person who used to be his business partner. Um, so another surgeon showed up to do the surgery. Um, so it's this guy, I don't know. Hmm. And, um, he's looking at everything and he, you know, once I'm, you know, back on the table and he's like, I can't, I, I'm looking at all this and I, I cannot save your nipples. This one is out and it's, it's gone. Mm-hmm. I'm really sorry. Um, the other one is necrotizing. It's, it, I, I can't save it. Mm-hmm. The tissue is gone. And I'm again, really, really sorry. You have a choice that I try to save it. And you're going to have this big blackened spot on one side or I take out the dead flesh. Um, and, and I'm just like, just, just take it. I don't care. Mm-hmm. I just don't care anymore. Um, and At that point, you just want to be done I with it. I just want right? it done. And so he left me an innie on one side, almost an A cup on the other side, with holes in my chest. Um, I am delighted to say, um, five and a half years later, that um, the human body is amazing. And I am starting to, my, my nerve bundles are starting to regrow. That's great. Yeah. I mean, like, it's amazing. Um, 
I don't, you can't technically regrow nipples, but the fact that I'm starting to get sensation in that area, I still have permanent nerve damage under one of my armpits. Yeah. But, um, but the fact that sensation is starting to return to that region is amazing. Cause I had just pretty much written off my chest as being an insensate experience. So at that point, I mean, that's gotta be totally, how do you even recover from, from something like that? And how do you trust another doctor? Um, that's a very good question. Uh, I have actually had um, flashbacks while do I don't do needle play mm -hmm. anymore. I, I hadn't for a while due to other some other stuff happening in my life, but I tried to with a friend of mine about two years ago, and I was under a bright light, and he was above me with a needle, and I, I lost my shit. Mm -hmm. Like I just I still have stuff there. Um, as far as how I was able to do my hysterectomy. Um, I think it helped that it was an in-hospital situation uh, because the other one, it was it's breast surgery except for very rare occasions where it's done for um, for breast cancer reasons. Mm. It's considered cosmetic surgery. Okay. Um, and so therefore it's done in private facilities, private clinics, et cetera. Not as many people to, to check up on, on the situation or everything. Yeah, when there's a total of five people in the entire office, six people, you know what I mean? Like it's it's his own experience. boss. He doesn't have to, yeah. Yeah, and so I think that helped with it. And um, the fact that I was um, by that point, I'd had a re chest revision surgery um, from an amazing doctor, Dr. Beverly Fisher, who um, at least was amazing for me. And she basically, I went in for a consult and she said, he did that. And she knew who he was. And I told him the story and she's just like, that, that explains a lot. Mm -hmm. Got it. Um, and found out through her that there had been another person who had been seen by him, who had come in with a similar story. I was not the only one. Yeah. Um, and she looked at me and said, I can't promise anything, but I'll do as much as I can, I promise. And so having her give me a positive experience, um, because I, could, I literally did not feel I could live with the results that I had at that time. Um, the lawyer I was talking with was just like, yeah, you know, we could document it. It would be so much better if you're going after the financial claims to be able to physically show what it looks like. And I'm like, I can't, I can't live like this. Mm -hmm. It's not okay. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I think having that helped a lot, having that intermediary step. And I still have distrust issues and I'm aware of it. Because, I mean, you did... Like you said, you did your research. You did everything that someone doing any type of procedure or doing anything, doing your homework, you did what you were supposed to do. It was this X factor that came in. I just can't imagine. I just can't imagine what that would have been like. So it's really funny you say, you know, you do everything that you can do and yet stuff happens. That's called life. Yeah, I, I know. I know. But, but this is a huge, I mean, this is a huge, it's not like you just found, you just picked some guy out of the phone book. You know, you, you, you did some research on it. Yes, that's life. But at the same time, um, you know, if you were, if you were to, to wager on it ahead of time, you never, you wouldn't have picked that, the outcome, what was going to happen in a million years. So... This is where I get a little bit philosophical and or spiritual, yeah. which is that um, I have experienced that everything that has happened in my life has happened for some sort of reason. I'm not saying everything that happens in other people's lives happened for a reason because, you know what I mean? Like, 
genocide, mm-hmm. if that's what the universe intended to happen, that's kind of crappy. Yeah. Right? To say the least. Yeah. You know, like racism. That's a great idea. Mm-hmm. Let's that's not what I'm saying in any way, shape, or form. But in my own life, there's been some really extreme weird stuff. I'm seeing a new therapist who's a really, really lovely woman um, who I love the fact that I said to her, you know, by the way, I have these kinds of relationships and this is what my gender reality is and whatever. And she said, okay. And, you know, that was about it. Mm-hmm. She was just like, that's what I need to know. Are you okay with me? Just like you did with your, your trans woman friend. Like, are you okay with me asking quote, dumb questions every once in a while? I'm like, yeah. She's like, then we're good. Um, but talking with her doing the intake, cause you've got to do those stupid intake forms yeah. of like, you know, were you ever harmed as a child? Did this happen? Have you ever been raped? And I, you know, as she, as telling her, she's just like, wow, you've gone through a lot of really interesting stuff in your life. And we're only up to like age 14 at this point. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. And, but looking back on it, like some of them have given me degrees of empathy. I would never have before. Like the, I, for me, um, uh, there's this experience that I had as somebody who was also shifting spiritually at the time of the idea of going through a um, shamanic crisis or shamanic rebirth or any of that kind of stuff that the fact that not only did I, you know, in, you know, just before, like only a year before that dedicate myself in my spiritual practice formally, but, you know, as, as a spirit worker, you know, and, and God slave, like I had just done that and I'm going through a new name and suddenly here's this crazy shit that I've got to go through. Um, so there's those kinds of pieces. Uh, I, I don't know, maybe I'm a Pollyanna. I don't think I'm a Pollyanna, but I, I think these things in my reality have all led to something down the road that ended up making sense for myself or someone else in my reality. Well, I think, I think anyone who went through that and hated the universe afterwards and was extremely bitter. I don't think anyone would blame that person for being bitter and hating the universe. And yet you are the exact opposite of that. And I think it just makes me, I I think it just really makes me think what a douche I am whenever I'm like (laughs) kicking myself because I, you know, ah, crap, I didn't get that job. Damn it, my life is the worst. You know? I, no, I do that too. Well, I know, I know, I, I know. Too. But I, uh, uh, the it's so easy to get so self centered and think about, it. and then when someone hears a story like yours, and they just go, "How are you not hating everyone and and every and and everything at this point?" Is just really speaks to these you know strength strength of your character again. I am also incredibly gifted by the people I have in my world. But yeah, you never know which which episodes are going to hit people and when and how. Because yeah. I, I have the exact same thing happen. I'm like, why the fuck did I put that out? That was totally rambling. Yeah. Somebody writes back and goes, that sentence. That's what I need to hear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I guarantee there, there, are, there are people who are listening right now who um, either they're going through something that they perceive is really difficult. Uh, or maybe there are people who are going through something even more difficult and... Uh, just hearing that story is going to, you know, let them know that, hey, things things going to be just fine if you look at it a certain – it's really – it seems to be your, your your whole arc of your story in your life seems to be a lot about perspective hmm. and keeping a certain level of perspective, either looking at the greater good or, or something like that. Afterwards, 
afterwards in the moment it wasn't pretty it wasn't happy it was me curled up in the ball screaming and yelling and you know at one point telling a friend of mine to get all the blades out of the house because i was really scared i was going to self-injure you know it's not always pretty happy stuff yeah um like it was it was a pretty horrible place to be but do i look at things after the fact and go oh that's how i can look at it yeah cool and I think for myself, having had some of those friends who were able to give me a space to just be fucked up for a while. And I did. I had a friend, you know, come, you know, come up from D.C. to New Jersey and be like, we're taking care of you. Because this is the other thing. I had no home. Yeah. In the middle of this, after my husband and I got divorced, I went on the road with no home. I put all of my stuff into storage and just bebopped like I did a month here three months there two weeks there three days there and just was on the road for two years and the plan had been you know four weeks of recovery one quick gig another four weeks of recovery and then go back on the road because with nothing that involved lifting yeah but that had been the plan four weeks of recovery no totally is not is not a long... So four weeks, one weekend gig, just to give me the pocket okay. cash. To, that was going to be, again, the one that I told you about that was, you know, no lifting, no anything. Yeah. It was literally going to be me carrying on one little bag, doing the two tosses, going back home. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, so I had no home. And that's one of the things that I got out of this entire experience was learning how to put down roots. Because, you know, I... I had developed a fear of roots after my, you know, I, I mean, I still have never lived anywhere in my life for more than six years straight, um, in my entire life. But, um, but still like, I was just like, I'm not going to have a home base again. I'm just going to be a globetrotter or whatever. And suddenly this made me, you know, do nothing other than stay in DC for a number of months. Mm. And I also was gifted then to be able to have the opportunity to be a service boy, um, for that household, um, without it being in a formal DX, DS context, which allowed me some healing from the relationship from the person who had been my dominant partner when the, all the chest surgery stuff went down and it didn't, that relationship did not go so well mm. in its ending. Um, that person I have, have since reconciled as people who talk to each other and are friendly to each other. But, um, and then I got to heal a little bit of that DS relationship that did not go well. And all of those kinds of things like, and getting to be there for the two of them because both of them had such busy lives when one of them started to have their health stuff go down and the other one started to have life stuff get crazy and like getting to suddenly become a, a fixed piece that was non-sexual in their poly world was also this gift of getting to peer into what it's like to be around other DS poly people. It's almost like the, the yeah. situation was forced you into... Oh yeah. Into, into areas where you thought would be uncomfortable that you kind of. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. I've, it's one of those things where I'm like, really universe, is that the only way I'll listen? Should I figure out some sort of other system? <laughs> but I have had like a year and a half ago, I had other medical stuff that went down and, uh, and I joke, but it's kind of true. It was the universe basically saying, no, really you gotta not work as much as you're working right. Cause I was working practically, you know, 12 hours a day, every day, kind of crazy. And flying most of the time, too, I imagine. Yeah. 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 I mean, but even when I was home, it was just go, go, go yeah. all the time. And suddenly 
I was incredibly sick. Yeah. And when you're incredibly sick, you've got to cancel gigs and you've got to learn to let people down and have it be okay. And you've got to learn how to take care of yourself and have that be okay. And yeah. it's like, you got to allow somebody else to do the stuff around the house and have that be okay. Yeah. And that's, and the repercussions and ripples from that are still, you know, you know, happening in my life. And it's like, okay, I've, this is the universe teaching me these lessons and I need to learn a better way to listen because finding myself in hospitals or, you know, physically, like this is not a good system. I gotta find some better system. <laughs> right. I know when the universe wants me to do something, but I really got to figure out the ways when the universe doesn't want me to do something yeah. in better ways. Yeah, I do. <laughs> I, I'm curious about, because, and, and, and maybe my perception of this is way off, but it seems like there are more trans women than trans men. Is that just a perception thing or? So there. Mm -hmm. I'm asking because I'm wondering how hard it was for you to find role models. Because my, the friend I was telling you about who, who answered a lot of my questions, she said that it was, she wouldn't have been able to get through it without certain role models that she looked up to and was able to ask questions and, uh, did you find the same? Did you find were you able to find role models as well, or people who had gone through it as well that you could connect with? Or yeah, to a degree. Actually, I shouldn't say to a degree. There's two older trans guys that I know in the Northwest who I was hang I got to hang out with and just pick their brains. And um, and by older, I mean like they're in their fifties. I want to say early sixties. And um, and that's that was a really invaluable thing. Um, Becoming a Visible Man by Jameson Green um, really woke me up to a lot of different things. Uh, there were a couple of other books that I found similarly useful, other ones not useful. Um, uh, and I happened to, when I made the decision that I was going to transition, I knew at least other genderqueer people um, that were able to have the, where are you making this decision from? Is this decision from your heart or from a response to something else kind of conversations mm. with, which was really useful. Um, and I, I did know other trans guys, but did I, would I say with any of them, did I have a mentor? No, no, I wouldn't. And I, I think that part of that for me was that I wasn't, I wasn't doing things in the normal order. And so when I did talk to trans guys about my experience of what I was going through and whatnot, it, I didn't fit a mold. Hmm. I ain't. I have effectively illegally gotten a passport because what you're historically supposed to do, and they have since changed, Obama changed the laws a year and a half ago, which is, or two years ago now, which was amazing. But six years ago, this was not the case. You were supposed to get your birth certificate and social security card changed first before they would allow you to be able to have a different a gender marker on your passport. Mm. Which meant that having been born in Massachusetts, I had to have had three different surgeries related to my gender to be able to get approved for a male passport. As a trans guy, you've got like a chest surgery or a torso reconstruction surgery. And then what do you got? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like for trans women, it's okay. Shaving of the Adam's apple breast implants and, you know, censoring on the lower body is what's considered normal as mm -hmm. it were. Um, but as a trans guy, it's like, what, a hysterectomy? What was I supposed to then do and do some sort of building of external genitalia? Well, if that's the experience for less than 10% of trans guys, let's talk about, talk about reality yeah. here, right? Um, 
And for some of those trans guys, amazing, fulfilling, good choice for them, etc. In fact, a fair number from what I've, I've seen from hung jury. But um, the fact that I went into the passport office because I had had a, na- a legal name change. And so I just went in to get a new passport, period. And I was a very polite young man. And I opened up doors for little old ladies. And I, I like kind of helped with a little bit of like... I encouraged somebody to slow down and, and get an ASL translator because somebody was hard of hearing and they weren't communicating very well. And the, the teller just kept getting louder. And I'm like, like I used a little bit of my pigeon ASL and went, oh, they would find it useful. They could get an interpreter because they're having problems. It's not you. They're just having problems hearing. Mm. Oh, okay. Because they just thought the person was being obtuse. Um, and so I looked at the form and said, oh, um, so I identify male. And there's this form here. Should I fill it out based on my history or based on my current reality? I'm not legally male on any of my paperwork yet. And the person behind the counter was like, just fill it out however you want. We don't actually look at that piece of paper. And I did so. I put down mail and I got my passport. It was a rushed passport because I was flying to Australia not long after. This was when I had the butt incident. And I got to the airport in Honolulu. And they're looking at they're looking at the old passport, the new passport, my old documents, my new documents, my flight information, my whatever. She's got like six different things laid out in front of her. And she just looks at it and goes, I think they got something wrong on your new passport. And I'm like freaking and this is before chest surgery. Yeah. Right? Like this is me just kind of freaking out and I'm like, oh, what's that? <laughs> what could that mean? Because I've got work in Australia, like yeah. in three days. And I'm just like, well, they, they, what? <laughs> and she said, I think they filled out a different gender marker between the two passports. And I said, could I see that? She hands them to me and I look at the new one. I said, no, they just got it right. And the woman just breathed for a second and said, I'm so happy for you. That's great. And... But that's not a story of other trans people. Like, I've mentioned that story to people who got their pa- – like, tried to get their passports before two years ago. And they're like, that doesn't happen. That's illegal. How could you have that – and I have a lot of those in my world, mm. too. Not just related to my, you know, gender transition. But I have a lot of things where people are like, but that doesn't happen. And I'm like, I hear what you're saying. This is my personal experience. Yes. This is what has happened to me. And with me and for me. And I'm not saying that your experience isn't real. I'm not invalidating your reality. But there are people out there where if your reality is dramatically different, it can be taken personally, which yeah. I, I don't mean to make anybody else's experience invalid. That's not, that's just my life. Well, you've clearly shown that your own personal experience is what's built you into the person you are today. And I can't thank you enough for sharing it for a second time. Yeah. In front of the microphone. I hope you're willing to come back and do it a third. Sure. Absolutely. And thank you for letting me ramble on this topic for so long because I'm just like, are you sure you want more? No, trust me. This is so <laughs> – so there, there are people like me who are – we are – I'm not trying to toot my own horn. I'm not trying to give myself too much credit or too little credit where uh, I'm sure there are plenty of other people like me who are uh, – I don't know what the phrase you would say – where we are – uh, around people, not just of trans, but of any type of uh, any anything that's different from where we grew up. Right. Uh, whether and now we're finding ourselves in New York City or finding ourselves in wherever, 
a different place. Or maybe we are still in the farming community, but there's a new person. And where we don't know what is the good question to ask. And there's a lot of people who are like, I don't know, is that rude if I ask this? Uh, and because sometimes it is rude to, to ask, right? And so I guarantee you there are a lot of people who uh, have learned from this, not just myself. Can uh, I throw out a couple quick things? Though? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as a note, me telling this story has no reflection on anybody else's comfort levels of ter- telling their story. Yeah. Because I have taken it upon myself. Um, Absolutely. That I'm the person you can ask dumb questions yes, of, as yes. it were. And there's no dumb questions, but there's things that can have people feel really uncomfortable. And so I would throw out, if you're not having sex with someone, don't ask them what their genital layout is. That's rude. Right? <laughs> yeah. Because it'd be like me walking up to the street with you and saying, how big is your penis? Yeah. If you're at the grocery store, that's rude. Yes. Um, I would encourage people to really think about how, why do you need to care? on a given question. Like, what was your birth name? Do, do you really need to care no. on that? Is that your business? Um, and again, if there's something you really feel moved by, but think about those kinds of things when you're going to ask those yeah, questions. Yeah, and there, there are some people who are asking that question because they think, I'm learning more about making this person more comfortable, when in actuality the question does the exact opposite, right? Because Or because they're just being nosy or whatever. And there are some trans people that, that their experience is that their past didn't exist. Yeah. That when they, like it, trans guys who when they tell their stories, it was them as a little boy. Yeah. And they translate all of that. They're not lying. Definitely. They're translating all of their experiences to that and that they're not necessarily F to M. They're not female to male. They identify as male to yeah. male. Yeah. And that they're just correcting their body to match their internal experience and there's some sort of medical mess up. And that's their truth. And so coming to that person saying like, so when you were a little girl, what name did you go by is not just challenging gender wise, but challenging for their entire life history. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, I have found that I've been lucky uh, to, to come upon people who are in many different walks of life who were kind enough to uh, say yes when I said, I have a lot of stupid questions. <laughs> Is it okay if I ask them and just know that I'm trying to be a nice person, but I know that some of these are really stupid. Thank you for being one of those people uh, with me today, and I really appreciate it. And again, please come back a third time. Thank and I'm sure so we'll have more emails and, and questions and like that as well. Thank <laughs> Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Um, thank you, Lee. Uh, that was a nice little break. Sit in Central Park, listen to Lee Harrington. And uh, I know, Sada, you know, you've, you've heard a lot of that before, but... It's nice to revisit. Yeah. Of course, you can find all of Lee's details on the website, mastercast.com. Uh, also, the link to our wedding registry, if you're so inclined. Uh, Saad has kinky things. I have nerd things on the list. We both have camping things. That's right. Kinky camping is coming up. So. Lots of games. Uh, next time you hear the episode, we'll be married, and you're going to hear my interview with Saad that uh, so many of you wrote questions in uh, for that made no sense. But... Um, We're going to go back to work. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you later. Bye-bye.